Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for Season 2 of Discography? I'm your host, Mark with a C, and Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canon albums of first release material to see who they really are and how it all stacks up. And you should know that for season two, we will be discussing the albums by the one, the only, Janet Jackson. Singer, songwriter, dancer, Actress, a household name, one of the biggest stars the Western world has ever known, and though she sold over 100 million records worldwide, few have really poured through her canonical albums to see how they stack up. From her unsung early recordings to the genre-defining albums Rhythm Nation and Velvet Rope, all the way to 2015's Unbreakable, we're taking the deepest dive into Janet Jackson's studio records one can possibly imagine. Season 2 of Discography premieres on July 17th, 2018, only on Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to State of the Empire, Consequence of Sounds, Lucasfilm Speculation Podcast, where we look for news in Alderaan places. And yes, I said Lucasfilm because there's going to be a real mixed bag of not just Star Wars in this particular episode. (laughs) I'm Cap. Hey, I'm Doug. Hey, I'm Matt. Matt, it's so good to have you back. It's a hollow, strange experience doing episodes without you. Yeah, it's a a hollow, strange experience as a force ghost. It's not all it's cracked up to be. (laughs) We are in the midst of a Star Wars dead zone. Things are about to change. I mean, San Diego Comic-Con is coming up. There's nothing really planned per se, but we could get some reveals from that. However, it is a long, dark road all the way to Episode Nine or the opening of the Disney theme park Galaxy's Edge. We have but fumes to run on. However, they're actually more intense fumes than we suspected. We have some news from Episode Nine. We have some casting announcements. I also want to say that normally we tell you about the Blast Doors, which we hide spoilers behind. No Blast Doors this episode. We have nothing to hide. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about something we promised for a while. That is, Doug has read a pile of Indiana Jones scripts. And much like he told us about the unused Star Wars material, he's going to tell us about the unused Indiana Jones material, which will likely come back to haunt us some way, somehow. You have no idea how apropos what you just said is applicable. (laughs) (laughs) we'll get to that cool (laughs) um and uh we're also going to be talking a lot about galaxy's edge and maybe diving into a particularly interesting discussion about what we covered last episode in terms of the discussion as to whether or not the star wars anthology films had in fact died and what exactly was going on with that we don't have much to go on but some unusual twitter conversations with parties involved suggests that maybe we just never, ever know what the fuck we're talking about. Yeah, conflicting things, to put it mildly. Yeah. So let's talk episode nine. 
We got casting. Some Bothans told Variety that Carrie Russell from Mission Impossible and the Americans and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is in early talks for Episode Nine. Every now and then we hear stuff like this, but seldom is it is it really. Yes, definitively, here's an actor who is in early talks for this film, and you know, someone like Variety is reporting on it. That's kind yeah. of odd. It seems like maybe it's a, that probably makes it a sure thing because everyone's already picked up the news and run with it. Carrie Russell is in episode nine. She's not, <laughs> but but she is now. It's Schrodinger's casting. I guess. Maybe we should just say, oh, you just announced Cast State of the Empire has a cameo, and it just happens. It's yeah. like, oh, that's <laughs> a good idea. <laughs> I, I mean, you'd think it's it's been a few days now. You would think you'd hear somebody saying, no, Carrie Russell's not in it. Maybe Carrie Russell herself. So we can at least deduce that there's conversations. Well, if you were like, Carrie it, Russell. It's not just a made-up rumor. And if you were Carrie Russell and you weren't yet officially cast, but everybody was saying that you were, are you going to get out in front of it and say, no, 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 it's not true. Stop saying it. You'll be well, like, I, I, I like don't, no, no, I, I guess I don't mean I don't mean Carrie Russell herself. I mean more like Carrie Russell's people or Lucasfilm. Like, right. I, th- I think regardless, if, if, they, if, if someone told me, Doug, is it true? Like, if, if Hollywood Reporter called me on the phone and was like, I know this is crazy. I know that you're nobody. But we just read a, a cast breakdown sheet, and your name came up. Are you in it? I would say, you know what? I, my brain would say, I'm obviously not. But my mouth would say, well, I can't tell you. <laughs> because you never know. You never know. And I'm not even an actor. So, yeah. Uh, confirmed. In episode nine, we're going to be playing aged-up versions of the characters that NSYNC portrayed in the prequels. Yeah. <laughs> in the deleted scenes. Yeah, or aged up versions of the broom kid. Yeah, there, there's Jedi. there's going to be a hefty time jump between yeah. nine and, and eight. It's going to be <laughs> us playing all of the street urchins from Canto Bite. So uh, what would you say? That's probably about a twenty year at least uh, time jump. I don't want to overthink it because it's not it's not my job to to, to write it. <laughs> right, right, yeah. This, I mean, but this this sounds like probably the best Marvel series we could ask for though is like a collection of all these like randomly fan-hated characters just all together. <laughs> like how great would it be if like Broom Boy was being trained by like one of the in-sync Jedi that survived the purge? <laughs> this Carrie Russell thing also went on to say that Abrams and Lucasfilm executives met with several actors for the role in the past two months and settled on Russell right before the 4th of July holiday, which is like, they settled on her? So she's in talks, but they've settled on her. I guess that's... I, I, it's probably not worded correctly. Like, like and, not, I, and I also don't think that part... If there's something to, to doubt, it's probably that part. Because, I mean, Abrams has, like, history with Carrie Russell. Right. I find it hard to believe that he settled for someone that he likes working with. I mean, settled is probably. I mean, that that that's ta- taken in that context. Yeah, yeah, he wouldn't. Maybe like close the deal. Yeah, not like I, I also don't even believe that several actors were considered. I think if J.J. Abrams wanted Carrie Russell, he probably has a role written for Carrie Russell. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if when was it Chris Terrio is the other writer. Like, he's probably they're probably writing a character for Carrie Russell. It it also said very strangely, Abrams will likely cast two more actors by the time the film begins production at the end of the month. All right. Yeah, yeah, that's like, why do you know that? How do you know that? That's a weird thing to know. Are you just speculating? Because, like, they tend to add, you know, X many name brand actors into the central cast. It's a weird thing to say. There will likely be more people in this movie. Right. Are you sure? All right. You know, I mean, unless they're talking major characters or something, maybe. I don't know. We're doing a lot of criticism of speculative reporting in the last couple episodes. But uh, moving on to that, uh, Billy D. Williams is. By all reports, except for official ones, coming back as Lando, finally. Hooray? 
I'm not. I'm not a fan of this one. I'm, I, I'm with Doug. You know, I, I like. I really wanted to see him in Force Awakens. Like, I really wanted to see Billy Dee in Force Awakens. And so then, why aren't you happy now? Why isn't this good enough for you, Doug? Hold on. Then I really wanted to see him in Last Jedi, but he he wasn't there. And now, everyone he knows is dead, <laughs> except for Chewie. What an exciting time for Lando to be reintroduced to the series. Yeah, I just, what are they going to do? I mean, like, just because I don't know what they're going to do doesn't mean it's bad. But I I don't know why now and not before. Like, what's the scene going to be? Like, Ray needs to do something somewhere. And what, is he still going to be a fucking gambler? He's going to come in. He's going to be like, Leia said uh, you guys needed a babysitter. Yeah, or just... <laughs> You know, and he's going to talk to Ray, and Chewie's like her bodyguard. He's like, hey, Chewbacca, how you doing? And then just like, rum, rum, rum. say, is uh, Leia around here? And then it's like a dark moment of where it's like, no, she's dead. And he's like, oh, uh, well, anyway, Han owes me some money. Where's Han, old boy? Just like, he's gone. He's dead, too. Well, uh, in that case, I'm going to have to ask Luke for a favor, even though we were never best of friends. And he's gone, too. It's like, why are you here, Lando? <laughs> like, I love him. I want to see him. But what's his role? I just worry that it's going to be a glorified well, fan cameo. Okay, hold on though. The f- you're going to like this. The film opens at Nim Yum's bachelor party, and of course Lando's <laughs> there. All right, <laughs> sure, yeah. Nim Yum, you know what? I take it, I take back what I said. Nim Yum and him, yeah. Okay, if if you bring if 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 Nim Yum is one of did he wait? Did Nim Yum survive? Yes, he Jedi? did. Okay, yes. great. Yep. You get him out there. He's like, we need somebody. <laughs> Nim Yum has to go get Lando and bring him back. Then I'm on board. If, if you put <laughs> those two together, whether it's in the Falcon or not, I'm 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 ready. Congratulations! I to me, I saved the day. You saved Episode Nine for me. <laughs> so I, you know, there, there, there's fifty to five thousand ways to make Lando an effective part of Episode Nine, and I'm sure. If you know, I know J.J. Abrams listens to this podcast, so like, I just want to be encouraging. Like, sure, there's probably great ways to incorporate him, but Last Jedi, for better or worse, made a very specific point to pass off this series to the next generation and to remove like the tethers from the original trilogy characters. You know, it's no longer Mark Hamill's story; it's now Ray's story. You know, Ray's not going to be the Last Jedi, et cetera, et cetera. And then, unfortunately, Carrie Fisher passed away and it morbidly was appropriate to what the movie's theme was and now they went ahead and said let's add another of the original trilogy characters right it's just it 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 probably isn't going to work well i fear the lando version of evazan and pandababa in rogue one <laughs> well I, I you know i think lando would only really work best as a how to put it nicely a glorified cameo like Ugh. if he, if he if he had an extended cameo where he's not a main character giving Ray advice or anything like that, but if he's just like there, like showing up to help fight or to help recruit, you know, because I mean he's he's with all due respect he's an older gentleman. I don't expect him to run around mm-hmm. kicking people and shooting blasters and stuff. But if he had to do something very Lando esque, like stall the First Order by smooth talking them while everyone escapes out the back door. And then uh, they eventually have to, you know, gun him down or they shove him aside or whatever. He'll have done his job. Oh, yeah. I should point out, like, in terms of fan circles, that's been the number one comment. Oh, great. He's going to die. Yeah. Because everyone else has died. Uh, you know, whatever. I, I, it, I, I'm i not going to judge it too harshly before it happens. I just am worried about, like like Matt said, I'm worried about what's what message is this going to be? Because if he's, like, an important part of the movie, which I don't think he will be, 
that would be very strange. But if he's just pure fan service, that also is bad. So you're riding a really fine line where there's only like one narrow avenue here where he could be like important and good and well utilized and everything else right. is just in poor taste or just ass backwards yeah the, the amazing thing is that they've already relegated current trilogy characters maz kanata to glorified cameos <laughs> and in a role in which lando may have been more appropriate like right. you know, instead they decided to establish this weird maz and poe dameron are buddies and she's just going to appear on hologram and weirdly help them out like that may have been yeah. the lando cameo that was appropriate well but what's strange is they're already doing that to current trilogy characters i don't have a lot of faith about glorified cameos anymore sure like, yeah i mean um has there been a cameo that we do enjoy like universally everyone was like hooray uh i would say red leader and gold leader in rogue one yeah that was i did actually get excited for that and that was like the smallest briefest of cameos too so yeah yeah and it was just it was cool like a, a really strangely tastefully done version of the uh like facial yeah. tech that yeah. they've been and it made out. sense like it just made yeah. sense mm -hmm. of course they were there um the with the billy d thing i should add you know it's not it's not official, but uh, he bowed out of an upcoming sci-fi and pop culture convention, citing a conflict with the movie schedule, and Hollywood reporters Ugnots confirmed that it's because Lando is striking back. Moving on to Galaxy's Edge, we have some intriguing patents filed by Disney. I believe you mean Black Spire uh, Outpost. Well, Galaxy's yeah. Edge, Batu, Black <laughs> Spire Outpost. Star Wars Land. Star Wars Land, ultimately, yes. Um, so... They got there's two patents which people believe are tied to relatively the same project. Either way, both Star Wars land things. One patent mimics the muzzle flash that happens when a blaster is fired, and the other one replicates blaster shots as they travel through air. As in you fire a blaster and you see the beam. What? Yes. No. Um in fact the article said it could simulate a blaster firing in daylight. No. Well, hold on to that no, because yes, no, but also yes, it's not exactly what you think, and the way it's done is a bit baffling. Augmented reality? No. Um, it, here, but here we go. Here we go. So first, I'll start with the blaster fire patent description. So this is the, the muzzle flash specifically. It, it has this very bizarre description. This is literally what's written on the patent. Okay. In the entertainment industry, there are many settings of venues where it's desirable to provide entertainment in an outdoor setting or venue. Theme parks may have outdoor worlds in which parades and shows may be provided to entertain each park's guests. For example, there are many theatrical plays and shows where weapon-based battles or conflicts are recreated by actors for a crowd. And, in such settings, the actors may carry props that simulate historical weapons or guns, existing weapons, or even futuristic weapons. In some cases, the live theatrical performance is attempting to recreate a scene from a movie in which prop <laughs> weapons are fired, resulting in explosions and flashes, muzzle flashes, of volumetric light that comes out of the muzzle of the prop weapon with each firing. Well, first of all, the way that was worded was like the opening of Plan 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> in some cases, reenactments of historical moments, sometimes real, sometimes fictional, and weapons of the past, present, and future can be seen <laughs> through the lens of entertainment. Like, all right, <laughs> just get, get to what you're getting to. So basically what it's saying is um, we want to do blasters that have a, a volumetric 
blast of light that come out the front of it. Right. So this would be specifically implying that it can be perceived in daylight. In also in theory, how in settings where they would be doing you know. Like Pepper's ghost effect, maybe? Like if you're up on a stage somewhere? Well, if you want to know how, we will link to, on this episode's page, the actual technical drawings that explain how this is done, oh, which I, I am unsuited to explain. Yeah. But that is the least of what's going on here. But these, these broad daylight... Blasters and daylight is the least? Well, because that's the the flash. That's just the pattern okay, well, the, the flash. Okay, well, the muzzle All right, fine, sure. The beam. Okay. So here's what happens. Blaster fire is sustained through the air by a bunch of small reflective surfaces, presumably on robotic arms that appear and disappear covertly. They're lined up so the shot appears to travel a long distance. Now, that's something that could happen in broad daylight, but probably shouldn't because you're totally going to see whatever the fuck that is that's happening. There. And you could probably only see it from a very narrow perspective. Right. Um, so... Uh, it's suggested that it's going to be used in Battle Escape, the dark ride. Okay. So much like the Men in Black ride at um, Universal Studios, you could you would be riding with a gun, and in this case, you would be able to fire in such a way so that you would be able to see your blast. It would look very real. Kind of like uh, you know, Secrets of the Empire. We're doing the VR thing. Right, but without glasses. Right. Um, Walt Disney World News Today pointed out that if the stage show actors would be using this, it would have to be very accurate shots um, because the set, the like the path would have to be like, calibrated right. for all the reflective surfaces to show right. up. So the the world of Galaxy's Edge keeps getting crazier. This this really reminds me of the Ghostbusters live action show at Universal. It was the whole thing was a Pepper's Ghost effect, right? With like the the glass between the audience and the show on the stage, and the Ghostbusters would have to hit their marks precisely right at the right time, and then you get the effect of the proton beams, which at the time were you know very convincing, and you know it, the I'm, sh- I'm sure that if it was still going on today, the effect would be greatly improved even more. Yeah. But yeah, it was very, I don't want to say rigid, but definitely very strict with, like, how they had to be on point every single time to meet it by the second. Otherwise, the entire effect is ruined. Yeah. So this has seemingly a little bit more flexibility and weirdly involves robotic arms. How are you going to keep this many pieces moving, working? I don't know. Man, they're, they're, they're trying so hard on so many new things. Surely they'll all work. <laughs> we shall see. What will be interesting to see is how many of them make the park's opening and how many are just introduced later. It it is very ambitious. I'm not holding my breath on any of that. Right. Neither am I. I have very low expectations because I I do want to be completely and utterly blown away by by Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, who doesn't? I mean, I I sincerely want all of it to succeed. Mm -hmm. But man, it seems like a hell of a lot. It's interesting that they've only just filed these patents. So like... I don't know where that usually takes place yeah. in the life cycle of an attraction like this. Maybe after maybe they, it's right on time, but it seems kind of late to me. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe they got to prove it works. I, I don't know. I mean, I think from from a like a, just a Disney fan perspective, like what's nice about the ambition is that you know Disney used to be a place that you could go to and see things and technologies that you hadn't like ever dreamed of before were possible. Yeah. You know, and I mean, and I think we've just been so plugged in for so long that we've now reached a point where. Yeah, they're doing some cool things still. And this isn't just Disney, but also other theme parks. But we all understand how they work and how it's possible. But it's kind of nice that they're looking at things that, like, we haven't seen at a practical level. Yeah. Like, that's kind of old-style, you know, Disney imagineering. Like, we could be in for some really amazing things. Yeah. Not just 
let's look at more movie screens. Yeah. Now the movie screen moves around you. Now you move around the movie screen. Now you <laughs> and the movie screen move together. <laughs> it's like, all right, we get it. We're kind of plateaued here. And so I, I am, yeah, when you frame it like that, I am very anxious as to any new practical stuff they're making. Yeah, well, I mean, they do have that Mickey ride that's going to literally put you in a cartoon in a way that is um, fascinating. I mean, I've seen some tech demos of it, and it's uh, it's nothing quite like it. It's going to be it's going to be neat. It's all projectors, but it's it's mm-hmm. a, a new and unique thing. So, Star Wars Resistance, the animated series, coming this fall. We've got a little bit more information for it, and very, very likely at um, San Diego Comic Con next week, we're gonna or something is gonna be shown. We're not gonna be there. Are you gonna be there? Let us know. Um, however, new key art for the show was uh, you could say leaked, but really it was like it was released via a photo on Twitter by someone who was supposed to be there and probably shouldn't have posted it and did it kind of by accident. <laughs> All right. So it was an annual meeting of the Walt Disney Company France and its partners. So this is a boardroom, like a hotel ballroom in France on a projector. A photo was shown of key art for Star Wars Resistance. And we have links to where you can see it. And what it is, is it shows the heroes and villains. Um, and, you know, we were talking a while back about how I felt this was going to be a 2D show. That that's where most of, like, animation is headed back to, you know, digital two-dimensional shows um, allows you to do much more. You don't have to have as much intensive budget. However, scrutinizing these character designs, I think that it is actually a 3D show that is heavily cel-shaded. Hmm. So it's a hyper-stylized 3D show, which might allow it to use its budget better and not have such vacant um, landscapes that are needlessly expensive, like Rebels and like mm-hmm. the Ninja Turtle cartoon on Nickelodeon. Um, but it, based on the way that things are shaded, I do think that it is a cell shaded 3D show, or some 2.5D. I don't know, some somewhere in between. I could be wrong, and I hope to be pro- proven wrong very soon. But that's what it looks like to me. Um, according to the Disney France employees who tweeted the photo, it is coming. The show is coming in October. It's going to have a strong focus on action and comedy, and BB-8 will have a big presence. Surprise, surprise. We already knew that um, Phasma and Poe are going to be in the show with Oscar Isaac and Gwendolyn Christie voicing them. And another thing that came out that was weird, I don't know when it was announced, the main character, a young pilot recruited by the Resistance, seemingly male, the name is Kazuda Ziono. Okay. So that's that's good branding, Kazuda Ziono. What's weird about this is that this character, like he has a profile on like the main Star Wars database already. Like This is already there. It was not announced. We never saw an announcement, but like yeah. people were referencing it. It's just the information's out there somewhere, somewhere. It didn't happen when the show was announced. It's just kind of there now. Weird. Yeah. We have Kazuda in this picture and some of the like you know resistance supporting cast, but there's a bad guy next to Phasma who there's a theory about. Yeah. I mean, from the looks of the photo, it looks like it's a red-colored stormtrooper armor, and that was a very distinctive trait of... Phasma's rival in the First Order from the Phasma book, which character's name was known as Cardinal. Weird thing about Cardinal was, yeah, Cardinal was bad, but by the time the book ended, Cardinal had sort of gone up against Phasma, and Phasma got the upper hand, of course, because this was before Force Awakens. I don't think Cardinal was still in good standing with the First Order. So what's interesting is, I don't know if this takes place even further before that, and then we already kind of have where Cardinal's story arc is going to go, or if, I don't know, that's kind of a confusing aspect. But also, 
this Stormtrooper armor looks slightly stylized different than a normal First Order trooper, but the novel seemed to make it clear that Cardinal's armor was just red. Like, that was the only difference, like red and a cape. And also pointed out that was definitely the only red armor in the entire First Order. <laughs> so I don't know who else it could be. Right. So I guess it's probably pretty clear that it's Cardinal, and they've just decided to stylize the armor a little bit. And it's interesting because this points to uh, a, a kind of glaring aspect of resistance that everyone working on this project is going to come up against, which is that based on the lead up and 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 so on surrounding um, the Force Awakens and everything that happened afterwards, that time period has actually been pretty thoroughly explored. There's not just the Poe Dameron comics, but there's also the Join the Resistance All Ages series, which has a plot that's you know, one would suspect lead male character of a junior cadet in the resistance, virtually yep. the same thing. Hmm. It, it is virtually the same thing. I mean, from what little we know, and we do, it's important to note, we do know very little, but it's shocking how there isn't really wiggle room for this, which brings yeah. us to an example of the kind of trouble we might be getting into. And that example is the fart wedding. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. It's finally time to discuss the fart wedding. Yes, there is an actual Star Wars event that has become known far and wide as the fart wedding. The fart heard around the galaxy. <laughs> now, you may recall I talked about Poe Dameron number 25, and in that issue, which was a great issue, Snap Wexley and Kara Coon got married. Um, it was a lovely ceremony. It was officiated by Princess Leia. But... That actual that same event, their wedding, happened in Join the Resistance number two, Escape from Vodron, written by Acker and Blacker, who've gone on from this all ages series to actually write Star Wars comics as well. And these the series centers around a guy named Mattis Bands, who's a young person in the resistance. And here's what happens. Um in in the Join the Resistance version, it's not Leia that officiates, it's Poe. And Mattis, uh, for reasons I don't know, because I haven't read this. Matt, have you read this book? Yeah, unfortunately. Oh, well, why don't why don't you why don't you tell the story then? Um, well, as I recall, uh, they had some some sort of pudding dish. Yeah, crackling before pudding. the wedding, like the whole crackling wedding party, pudding. like everybody, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, and um, it gave everyone food poisoning. <laughs> I don't know how how better to describe that. I mean, that was just that was the you know the gist of it. As I read it on, on Wikipedia, uh, crackling pudding is made from crackling pods and canned bantha milk, which Mattis flavored with analam powder, which is what caused everyone to fart. And I, um, what I don't know is, was that on purpose or was that by accident? I'm fairly certain it was by accident. I mean, mm. they were kind of pranksters, but you have to understand, like, I like these books are pretty bad and like kind of glossed over a lot of the detail to be honest but <laughs> it was hard once the action really picked up at the fart wedding to like forget that part except in a weird way actually i did block it out for a long time because it's something that i normally would have brought up to you immediately but for some reason <laughs> like i sat on it until poe dameron number 25 took it out of continuity or out of the canon which is actually, I mean, quite frankly, before we even get into the details of the fart wedding, is the biggest deal here because they made such a big deal about one true canon and that, you know, they, they weren't going to step on each other. And, like, obviously, right away, people started picking up on details that didn't make sense. And it's hard to keep these universes seamless. And yeah, you we're sympathetic work with to it. that. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, we're not these fans that just, you know, go through and nitpick like, oh, you know what? He was left-handed in that last book, you know? But this is something that was really poorly received, and they clearly decided to rewrite history. And in Poe Dameron 25, completely retold the event in a, you know, not ridiculous manner. Yeah. That one true canon thing is out the window. But probably for the, you know, when it comes to retcons, Star Wars is known for some good ones, and this may be a good retcon. <laughs> Yeah, so so I mean, before it it fades into total obscurity, I want to share with everyone uh, the joy, the sheer wonderment that is the fart wedding. Everyone was happy and full during the dewy-eyed procession and heartfelt vows. Poe himself officiated the wedding of his friends. If he felt the same rumbling in his guts that everyone else did as the ceremony proceeded, he was too cool a customer to show it. But he must have. For when it came time for him to ask if Snap Wexley took Kara Kuhn to be his wife, he only got as far as, Do you, Snap Wexley, take Kara Kuhn to be your? Before his insides erupted in the most atmosphere-ripping flatulence the galaxy had ever heard. Jeez. The galaxy had ever heard. <laughs> ever. <laughs> Old Republic, none of it. <laughs> Nothing on this. Everyone laughed because they sympathized. Their insides were doing somersaults as well. But Poe Dameron was always cool, and he began again asking, Do you, Snap Wexley, take Karakun to be your wife? And I'm laughing now because I dictated this. <laughs> and I, I thought I proofread it. But I did not. I missed this part. <laughs> I missed this part. <laughs> it says... I'm sorry. <laughs> this is, wait, okay. Your dictation, not the actual text now. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Do you snap Wexley? Take a, take a raccoon. <laughs> and I, I should <laughs> I should point out that Siri, <laughs> I, I fixed most of these instances because I, I, the a raccoon I'd never read before, but but Siri was changing sn snap Wexley. <laughs> Just Snapple actually. <laughs> oh, that's Snapple a good one. Actually. It's like love actually, but Snapple. <laughs> this, this this goes into our uh, autocorrect hall of fame, along with uh, Bays and Chirrut from Rogue One, commonly known to us as Basil and Cherries, yeah. thanks to Siri. Caracoon. A raccoon. I now pronounce you a raccoon. <laughs> I now pronounce you... And Snapple, actually. <laughs> anyway, uh, managing... Sna Snapple and Raccoon are my favorite Star Wars couple. <laughs> uh, <laughs> managing to get the whole sentence out that time. Snap was not so lucky. I, he began, and what followed was a four-alarm fart that lasted longer than the ceremony itself had thus far. Like, what... <laughs> Which was probably, if that is an accurate statement, and I'm sure it's exaggerated, but it was probably at least four to five minutes long. But not as ripping as the as <laughs> as Pose was longer, <laughs> but less intense. A wave of laughter washed over the crowd, and then again, when Kara, in disbelief, yelled at her soon-to-be husband, and let out a deep meteoric toot herself. She slapped both her hands over her face, completely embarrassed, as Snap, Poe, and everyone else just let laughter rain. Because soon, everyone who'd eaten the crackling pudding was sounding off like firecrackers, tooting and honking and letting loose with all kinds of gassy exclamations. It was mortifying, 
<laughs> and an and uproar all at once. Mattis stood beside, beside Joe, who emitted a high-pitched that was unlike anything anyone had ever heard. Uh. I don't know what species Joe is, but I like to think that Joe is an alien with maybe like an asshole or a sphincter in their navel. And it, just, and it was especially like, it was like no one had ever heard it because he's the only one left of his species, like a Lissat or something. <laughs> it's like, it's like <laughs> if, I re- if I remember correctly, Joe is a Zeltron, I think. What's the, very, what is that? Very, very, very humanoid, red-skinned humanoid. Huh. It sounded like one of those rings that you blow into. <laughs> 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 Joe didn't punish J-Squadron because, as he said, no one would ever mention the event again but in hushed whispers. But Mattis knew Joe and had other reasons. It was because he'd had fun. It had been wild and silly, and there wasn't a lot of opportunity for that in the Resistance. Fighting against the forces of evil is serious business, as it should be, but sometimes it was helpful to just let loose and laugh. Mattis suspected Joe knew that, and that was why he didn't exact any punishment. Joe is is not a Zeltron. Joe is actually a fellow human. Joe is actually related to, uh, it's it's Joe Gergerod is actually related to Moff Jer Gerard from Return of the Jedi. Wait, so that, so, that. so wait, wait, wait. So I remember before we were saying, oh, is that a coincidence? Are they actually related? So they are actually related? I I, I, I think so. I think they are. Because wow. in the second book, they said something along the line of the Jer Gerards being like longtime loyalists. Wow. If Jer Gerard lived to see what became of his offspring. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Mattis said now, apparently flashing forward in their cell on Vodrin. As if to punctuate his point, Mattis released a prolonged, monotone fart. <laughs> you did it, Acker and Blacker. You did it. Star Wars had survived a long time. I, I feel like... Is there, like, a secret fetish coming out of this? Like, what, like why? Why would you go into... <laughs> So much detail, like just describing each fart as like the most amazing thing that's ever happened to anyone who was there. I, I gotta hand it to them, really. I do. There, there's the the descriptions of these farts are excellent. Was they this are like, so good? Was this like a test to see if the editors were actually reading it? Oh yeah, it's like the watermelon bit in Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah, like <laughs> like oh, are you actually reading this, or are you gonna let us get away with this farts? And then it's just like we read it, we think it's great, we're publishing it, and they go oh. Oh shit! Do, is it too late for us to say that we totally put a farting scene in there, or does it? Well, story group editor Matt Martin said on Twitter, "Honestly, it was a miscommunication between creators trying to do something awesome together while working within different production timelines. I'm not sure if there were actually two weddings or if Leia and Poe both officiated part of the ceremony." So, <laughs> <laughs> Leia ripped one, unlike <laughs> anyone in the rebellion had ever smelt. Or dealt. <laughs> In fact, I'll be honest, she pooped a little. <laughs> uh. So, and also a big flaw in the midst of all this is that, I mean, Join the Resistance came out first, and then Poe Dameron happened. But one of the most impactful moments of the Poe Dameron comics run is that Adi dies. So, Adi is in this wedding scene with the fart wedding. He, Adi's in the fart wedding. A, a repugnant fart came out of all of uh, Adi's nipple sphincters. And <laughs> I was like, Game of Thrones, they got the red wedding, they got the purple wedding, Star Wars, we get the fucking fart wedding. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, really, at this moment in time, do we deserve any better? No, I guess not. It's not the wedding we wanted, but it's <laughs> the wedding we deserved. 
Oh God. But I think you're right. There's there's no way with the similar story that Star Wars Resistance kind of has set up that these characters are getting anywhere near like the join the resistance characters are getting anywhere near Star Wars Resistance. Right. And if they do, I will donate fifty dollars to a charity because <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. There's no way they're going to except I, I will say they are doing at least one more join the resistance book. Weird. It ends on a cliffhanger, and they have joined the resistance. Uh, I think it's called on Star Killer Base. So that's going to be fun, by the way. Finding out what J Squadron was apparently doing on Star Star yeah. Killer Base Here's during what I Force think. Awakens. I think this whole thing is wildly out of continuity now. It uh, it didn't sell well. There was a gap in publishing, or they realized that they wanted to pivot and do something completely different. They realized they had to end it for the fans who are all young people and deserve you know conclusion to something. And now they're like, you know what? There is no continuity, and therefore, let's take them to Starkiller Base. They're not going to kill them on Starkiller Base, do you think? No, they're going to go on a crazy adventure that could never fucking happen. Nah, Space Whale's going to show up at the last minute and zap them out into hyperspace. Which, which I want to add, is fine. A a crazy all-ages book doesn't need to be in continuity. The only problem comes when you literally say, hey, everything's in continuity. Forces of Destiny, it's in continuity. It's all in continuity. Well, I I agree with you that all-ages books don't have to be all in continuity. But, you know, for all the flaws that the old Expanded Universe had, they had some really good all-ages books they that, did that 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 put huge stamps on the entire you know canon universe and i just and and there's been some really good all ages books in the new new expanded universe too but like i just oof. i personally the resistance has really created a problem <laughs> and acker and blacker's comics have been fine but like yeah i guess i guess not these so i i don't want to i just want to add one last thing which is i don't want to be disparaging to all ages books i think that they should be like quality enough to be you know valid contributing factors to continuity but um i mean honestly i i think this is this is a weird uh situation where the the story group didn't know what they were getting into and filled up this time period with a lot of things, not realizing that they, you know, kind of, sort of could benefit from saving that for something like uh, a big tentpole cartoon like Resistance. Yeah. And that's fine. That's fine. They just got to, you know, they just got to be, just be honest about it. I mean, if they were just, if they were just frank about it, there wouldn't be, there really wouldn't be a problem. No one would be like really wagging a finger. It's, it's, you know, it is what it is. Before we go on, I want to point out that this show thrives on a certain degree of support from our listeners. We are recorded in the Nerdy Show Network studios, so if you give to the Nerdy Show Network on Patreon, you'll get a bunch of State of the Empire behind-the-scenes content. You could even get early releases of State of the Empire if we have them early to give to you, and it helps fund uh, our production. So that would be very valuable. We highly encourage that. Even a dollar a month is a huge help, and yes, you will get a pile of extra State of the Empire stuff. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser. That is extraordinarily helpful. There's a lot of Star Wars podcasts out there, and you are our only hope. You find folks listening. If you like this show, the only thing keeping us down is being pressed under the weight of a thousand other such podcasts that aren't nearly as good. Mm. So uh, please, uh, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. It's been a while since we've been able to read a review because it's been a while since we've had a review. Don't hesitate. Do it today. As we move on, we're getting some weird stuff here. Last episode, we talked about the spinoffs. 
here's somebody whose name has never really come up in a Star Wars conversation, at least not one publicly, in terms of directing a Star Wars film, except that he was involved in the Rogue One reshoots. He wrote some stuff. And the guy's name is Chris McQuarrie. He did Mission Impossible Fallout. And Way of the Gun. So on July 2nd, Ryan Johnson tweeted, Lots of people on Twitter give writing slash filmmaking advice. My only advice, follow at Chris McQuarrie. So because Ryan tweeted that, a bunch of Star Wars fans went back into McQuarrie's tweets and saw that a few days prior, he'd posted a tweet on the anniversary of Rod Sterling's death where he talked about Sterling's inserting of progressive and socially conscious messages into his stories. One of the great hallmarks of Twilight Zone. And that incited the nastiest Star Wars fans. One user said that SJW nonsense should be taken from all fictional stories, because that's helpful. And then the discussion, understandably, spiraled out of control to the point where Johnson got involved and he and McQuarrie were talking. And McQuarrie said to him, my friend, after five minutes of this, I don't know why you're still on Twitter. I would have loved to make a Star Wars film someday. I'm cured. Wow. Now, it didn't last long because on July 3rd, a user asked McQuarrie if he'd ever considered directing hard sci-fi. And I should add that this news of McQuarrie's tweet, it turned into a... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Fucking headline, and it shouldn't have really. It's a non-story. But July 3rd, he said, absolutely, uh, direct a hard sci-fi film. Even Star Wars. The most hardcore, fan-winking, all-you-can-eat spectacle. A hero's journey resurrecting techniques from the silent era, just like OG George intended. I just need a script so good I have to make it. Or goodwill. Right now, I don't see either. Burn. Well, he wrote Edge of Tomorrow. So he's already written a, I wouldn't call it a hard sci-fi, but definitely science fiction. Yeah. I mean, and Star Wars is not a hard sci-fi. It's science no, fantasy. Not at all. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Um, I, you mean live, die, repeat, Doug? Uh, actually, if you put the movie uh, on the main title, says Edge of Tomorrow. So. Uh, <laughs> well, Live, Die, Repeat's a better title, so we're just going to go with that. Yeah. Do you know what the original title of that was? Good movie, by the way. Good movie. Excellent movie. Throw that out there. Yeah. The original title was All You Need Is Kill. That's the manga, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, with a title like that, you would never forget it. <laughs> like, why would they change it? It's so bland. Ugh. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow focused uh, positively in the groups, you know, like uh, positive blanding marketing. Oy. Very good blanding. Um, <laughs> so this, the, the McQuarrie thing, it, it even prompted like an article on sci-fi that was an opinion piece called Why Christopher McQuarrie Swearing Off Star Wars Might Actually Be a Good Thing, where the author pointed out that, um, you know, that McQuarrie as a, as, a, as a white guy who just looks like a generic white guy director is exactly the sort of guy 
that studios and fans are conditioned to expect to show up for these big ticket franchise and the toxicity of the fandom is so bad that it's actively scaring away the guy you'd expect to direct it. Yeah. So since it's definitely not going to since the roster of directors would definitely under these circumstances not include any person of color or any queer person, then who's going to direct these fucking movies? And the author said that, you know, I'm an optimist, so maybe this is silly, but maybe this would throw some cold water on the fans realizing, that, oh, we scared away a white man. So we must be really bad. We got to look in the mirror. I don't think that's going to happen, but I, I don't know what the alternative yeah, is. Yeah, that, that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of wishful thinking. Yeah, if they couldn't differentiate between Rose, the character, and the actress, and scared her off of social media, I doubt they're going to be looking in the mirror anytime soon. Yeah. So related to this, James Mangold, alleged director of Boba Fett, director of Logan, said, I, I think unprovoked on Twitter, I'm not 100% sure, but it definitely like was in the orbit of this discussion. Um, at least he was aware of it. And mm-hmm. therefore, at the point when writing and directing big franchises has become the emotionally loaded equivalent of writing a new chapter of the Bible with the probable danger of being stoned and called a blasphemer, then a lot of bolder minds are going to leave these films to hacks and corporate boards. To which Chris McQuarrie tweeted, Amen. And then one random dude said, They already have. As in, like... They've they, already given it to corporate yeah. hacks or whatever. Um, to which Mangold responded, If you feel that's the case, if you feel the filmmakers are just corporate tools and powerless, then why bitch at us? In the case of Ryan Johnson and Chris McQuarrie, I assure you, these cats are not owned. They actually fight your battles behind the scenes. One user said, I think some people might prefer film to be made by committee. Just look at what's happening to with the supposed remake of The Last Jedi. They want to be safe, not bold. Bold means new. New means different. And different means you're not always going to get what you want. To which Mangold simply replied, the committee version exists solely in imagination. Which is interesting. He's saying that the, the, the filmmaking by committee has not happened yet. His initial tweet was saying these films are going to be left to hacks and corporate boards. But he's saying that, like, you know, even even we have talked about a certain degree of committee orchestrating these films. And he's saying that from his own experience and expertise, that is actually not happening right now. Well, I uh, that lends credence to what Kathleen Kennedy said way back when they were first announcing they were taking it, which yeah. is, you know, letting each filmmaker come in and make their put their own stamp on it and do whatever, which I still kind of believe. But I don't believe it for other major film franchises. You know, like there's definitely committee stuff involved with with the others, and and that's not to say that the directors don't have a choice; they have no freedom whatsoever. But you know, it's a messy, messy collaborative business. A couple days later, uh, a user said, "Boba Fett movie equal worst idea ever." <laughs> to which Mangold replied, "I'm making a period car racing movie with Christian Bale and Matt Damon. No Mandalorians involved. Stop reading so much gossip." Mm. That's interesting. If that's not true, and that was heavily confirmed and reported by all the alleged sources of Hollywood Reporter, etc., then what does that mean? Maybe he was and now he isn't? Or he never was at all? It's frustrating for me because I, I feel like I'm on James Mangold's side in this argument, but at the same time, like I don't fully believe him. <laughs> like There's a lot of contradictory messaging going around. They talk about that corporate filmmaking or the committee versions don't exist. And and, and I, I do think we've overblown the idea of this movie by committee thing. But, you know, they have a like there's actually a story group. You know what I mean? There still is a directive above some aspect where 
there's decision makers at an executive level and those people are creative people by themselves but like you know that acknowledges that there is such a thing i mean we we've watched marvel committee themselves into you know a very tight universe that's worked out very well it doesn't always work poorly it also you know sometimes it happens we see it with dc you know like it's hard to say that committee versions don't exist when like it looks like there's a lot of evidence that there is but at the same time i do think the directors still have a lot of power to put their own stamp. Well, who told Colin Trevorrow no? Like, who looked at what Colin Trevorrow was proposing and said no? Was it right. the story group that said, ah, this doesn't really fit up? Or was it just Kathleen Kennedy? Or was it a mixture of people at Disney? Like, I mean, we don't know. But someone somewhere told Colin Trevorrow to take a hike. Actually, right. a number of times until finally taking a hike. So, yeah, they brought in someone to rework his script completely, and they so, still hated the rework thing, and so they got rid of him. So, yeah, there there is a committee executive element to these things. You can't deny that. But there always is. But at is. the same time... Yeah. That's movies. That's not yeah. unique to Star Wars. Right. So, yeah, interesting. But apparently, um, Boba Fett film might be a real thing, but maybe Mangold was never really more than a discussion that was being had. Yeah, maybe he mm-hmm. was being courted and just yeah. said, eh, maybe, I don't know. couple quick final Star Wars things before we shift on to the rest of Lucasfilm. If you're interested in reading a kick-ass Star Wars comic, I want you to get your ass down to a comic book store. I want you to pick up Vader 18 off the shelf. It's a standalone story. If, you've just, if you just want a sample of something excellent, get Vader 18. Here's what I'm going to tell you about it. Tarkin is hunting Vader. As in Vader is like the prey. They're on a planet. He has a hunting party. He has a bunch of specialists with him. Tarkin is great white huntering the ultimate prey, Darth Vader. It's a one-issue thing. You know, that's part of Tarkin's, um, like, current canon backstory, too, is that the the culture he comes from, Iriadu, like, their aristocrats bring, like, their like their, their rite of passage into adulthood is being brought out to the jungle to, to, to hunt the, you know, great predators of their planet so that they don't forget like you know where they come from and like that to have that killer instinct when they go out into the universe so i'm curious what what do you know what planet it took place on uh, on off the top of your head off the top of my head no i don't it's um, interesting it's cool that they're incorporating that from the tarkin novel that they're bringing that into like vader's world like, that's just charles soul cool. for you he does that shit yeah mm-hmm Bookwise, Thrawn Alliances comes out July 24th, and there's a new excerpt you can read, a preview excerpt on StarWars.com, which we'll link to. But the real thing here, the thing that makes it news, is Padme's in it. And there's a uh, piece of art of her on Batu, the setting for Galaxy's Edge. Black Spire Outpost. Yeah, Black Spire, a.k.a. Black Spire Outpost, a.k.a. Star Wars Land. Um, this, this, this art is apparently exclusively in a Barnes & Noble exclusive edition. I don't know what's up with that. Um, and I guess there's going to be some, like, in this, as depicted on the, the cover, Thrawn is Grand, Grand Admiral. But there's going to be apparently some hefty flashbacks to when Anakin and Padme and Thrawn were working together during the Clone Wars in the Outer Rim, because that's where Batu is. Say what? Yeah. And apparently it seems like from this excerpt that there's a droid manufacturing plant on Batu, which is why this is happening. Okay. Yeah. And the Thrawn adaptation of the novel, the comic adaptation of the novel by Jody Hauser. The the novel is by Timothy Zahn. The adaptation is by Jody Hauser. I just finished it. It just the final issue just came out. It is 
exceptional. If you love Rebels, you really, 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 really need to read the Thrawn comic book adaptation. It is going to be a wonderful um, thing to help the ending feel even a bit stronger. You get some background on the governor, you get some background on Thrawn, which is all quite interesting. But then there's enough implication about, this is just me learning about what happened in the book, but I think it was a great medium to do it in. You get enough implication about Thrawn and his machinations and what might come in the future that you get some sense of what could have happened after the end of Rebels, where this story might go and what might be happening. But Te- I don't know. Teaming up with Ezra? I don't know. I mean, clearly they're they're bitter rivals, but... Thrawn has some other shit going on. Some non-imperial shit is going on. And that's all alluded to in an interesting way in this, well, in in the story, the novel, the comic. But I I like the comic a lot. And all reviews point to the comic actually being the superior version of the story, surprisingly. Moving on. It's time for Indie Inquiry. Last episode, we talked about John Kasdan writing the script. And we talked about how there's probably going to be a substantial change in the release date of Indiana Jones 5. It had been delayed. That is all 100% true, and officially, it's been moved to July 9th, 2021. Wow. Yeah. Feels like such a long way from here. It is a very long way from here. Oh, I can't believe two out of the five are going to be old indie. Now, this is like really old indie. Oh, well. Yeah, well, I mean, there's the intro-outro of every single Young Indiana Jones Chronicles episode as it was originally aired on TV and then exercised from the DVD release. That guy was 100 years old with an iPad. Yeah, no, it's fair. And and what's funny is I, I've actually enjoyed watching a lot of like comments on Facebook and like these news sites, anything about indie saying like Disney should hire Alden Ehrenreich to play Indiana Jones. And oh, I'm like, get out of here. Happy. You're the same like, jerks no, who were yeah, saying no one could replace exactly. Harrison Ford. Exactly. And I think it's very I do think it's cute, though, that everyone was generally if you've seen Solo and you think anything of it. It's usually not that Alden was bad. Everybody seems to think he was like one of the best parts of the movie. And it is very cute now to see that if they did cast him and they're not going to like he can't. And also, I don't think Alden would even accept it. Like he literally doesn't want to like just only follow Harrison's, you know, steps. You know, next he would be you Jack know, Ryan. Jack Ryan. Exactly. Once again, a new reboot of Jack Ryan. J.J. Abrams does a, a prequel to Regarding Henry. <laughs> Oh, he wrote that. Yeah. That makes sense. That's what I'm saying. He I does know. a prequel. It is great to see now no one would would lash out at that. Like, everyone loves Alden Ehrenreich, and I'm glad they hit a home run with that. His character from Witness going into law school. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Doug, why don't you hit us with that, that Indiana Jones stuff? Oh, you, you, you don't know what you're asking. I, uh, I mean, just for a little additional context, in past episodes of State of the Empire, you have read early drafts of the original trilogy of Star Wars and found all these different ways that it pings what's happening in the new trilogy, ideas that have been very consciously lifted, yeah. not mere coincidence, yeah. no way. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what'd you read? What even did you read from Indiana Jones? Okay, I read a lot. There is a really twisty, turny history of what avenues they could have taken and didn't take. And the deeper you dig, the crazier this gets. So a few years ago, they released a transcript online of Lawrence Kasdan's audio tapes when he would go into meetings with George and uh, Steven Spielberg. Just blue sky thinking, just like, what would you want to see in a movie like this? And they all talk about scenes they want to see, and many of those scenes ended up in Where's the Lost Ark. Many of them showed up in Temple of Doom because they all thought they were just making one movie, so they were just all these things were getting thrown out. 
Lucas apparently told Spielberg that he had ideas for like a trilogy. He was like, oh yeah, I got so many ideas. So they make Raiders, huge success. And then Spielberg's like, great, what are some of those other ideas? And he goes, well, actually they were just kind of ideas. They weren't really fleshed out, um, just sort of concepts. And uh, one of them uh, is about the uh, Chinese legend of the Monkey King with his uh, garden of immortal peaches. And Spielberg's like, I don't know if I dig that. That sounds really expensive. I'm not really big on the search for immortality and uh, whatever. What else you got? And he's like, oh, well, I have another one where the whole thing is uh, set inside a, like a Scottish castle and it's haunted. In the whole movie, he's like in a haunted house. Spielberg's like, no, I just did Poltergeist. I'm not doing ghosts. <laughs> so you got to give me something else. And when Temple of Doom was eventually written, uh, the two writers who wrote it basically just picked up all the scraps that they didn't use for Raiders of the Lost Ark and built the story around that. Interesting. Uh, like the minecart sequence was originally at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but they cut it before they even filmed it. Uh, other things that you can read in that transcript of uh, those early story meetings that end up in Temple of Doom instead. But then Temple of Doom comes out and it got strange feedback. People thought that the female interest was too annoying and that the jokes were too juvenile and you got this weird kid running around and, oh my gosh, the violence and why is this so dark? I took my kids to this and this is so culturally insensitive to anyone from India. Like, how could you make something like this? And apparently Spielberg was very aware of the feedback and felt bad and wanted to fix it. And it didn't also help that two months before Temple of Doom came out, Romancing the Stone was a hit. And people were saying, why isn't the sequel to Raiders more like Romancing the Stone? And Romancing the Stone was a big hit made on a third of the budget that Temple of Doom had. So what is a filmmaker to do? <laughs> you got Lucas and Spielberg are like, we need to make another Indiana Jones. Who should we get? So they decided to get the person who wrote Romancing the Stone. And <laughs> okay, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. So on that note, I'm going to rewind the clock. Go back to 1978. There's a woman named Okay. Yeah, there's a woman named Diane Thomas. She's a waitress in a diner on the Pacific Coast Highway. All throughout 1978, if she's not at work, she's working on a screenplay. And she's typing away and she's working her ass off. And she eventually finishes it and she's giving it to her agent. Her agent's gonna try and sell it. This is the screenplay for Romancing the Stone. Uh-huh. Within a week, she goes from working as a waitress to Michael Douglas has read your script. He wants to produce it and star in this movie, and they sell it. Meanwhile, Raiders of the Lost Ark was written, filmed, and then comes out in theaters because this the script for Romancing the Stone bounced around Hollywood for a long time. Uh -huh. So by the time Romancing the Stone comes out, everyone's like, oh, this is like a cheap knockoff of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Meanwhile, this was written way before Raiders of the Lost Ark was even written. But it was a beloved cheap knockoff of Raiders oh, of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah, Dark. still. If, for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen Romancing the Stone... Seriously recommend it. Yeah, Romancing the Stone and its sequel, Jewel of the Nile, are both great. Yeah, Romancing the Stone, directed by Robert Zemeckis. Anyway, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are like, get that woman on board for Indiana Jones. So they pulled her in, and she actually did write a first draft of a screenplay based on George's idea of Indiana Jones being trapped in a haunted castle. <laughs> now, unfortunately, she wasn't able to write any more drafts of that because... Okay, her writing Rancing the Stone coming from obscurity, the press was like, she's like a Cinderella story, and she's and she's making deals with Lucas and Spielberg. She was also starting an early draft for Always for Spielberg. Wow. And because she was working for Spielberg and Lucas, she wasn't able to write the sequel for Jewel of the Nile, but she was doing like uncredited, I don't want to say rewrites, but like help on the script like while they were filming. Michael Douglas loved her so much for doing all of that. He bought her a Porsche, and <laughs> unfortunately... A few weeks later, she was involved in a car accident and died. 
uh, that very same car. Oh. Uh, yeah. So everyone was like, oh, fuck, you know, and this was like a huge tragedy. And in fact, following her death, the uh, UCLA Extension Writers Program created the Diane Thomas Screenwriting Awards in her honor. And the original judges of that were Steven Spielberg, Michael Douglas, James Brooks, and Kathleen Kennedy. Wow. So. Okay. She died in 1985. Spielberg's like, okay, I, we can't, we, I, I know she did that script about the ghosts and stuff, but I told you I did Poltergeist. I don't want to do it. What else you got? Who can we get? But in the meantime, in the years since, this guy, Chris Columbus... Some guy, I don't know, yeah. Chris Columbus, named after the, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the boat made, guy, the, he, the boats. He wrote Gremlins and the Goonies, and they're like, well, Goonies was a hit, and that's kind of adventure Why don't we get Chris Columbus? So they pull in Chris Columbus, and Chris Columbus writes a draft not about the ghost mansion, but instead about the Monkey King. And he writes this script that's known as Indiana Jones and the Garden of Life, but it's also known as Indiana Jones and the Monkey King. And this was written um, by my estimates because the timelines are all screwed up on all over these things. If you try and find a, a copy of this online, the dates are all wrong and they credit it as Indiana Jones 4, not Indiana Jones 3. I believe this was written in early 1986. And the reason why we know this is, I mean, the timeline, just trust me, this was written to be Indiana Jones 3. <laughs> so anyway, nothing goes to waste. Spielberg and Lucas wanted certain scenes to be in this film and they are. And the script was thrown out, but these same sort of scenes are actually in the final version of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Now, I don't even, like, we're already so deep. I don't know where to begin <laughs> on, on this screenplay, other than I think Chris Columbus is a good writer. He's made some great films. I think this first draft that I read for Indiana Jones and the Monkey King would be a very interesting adventure flick for anyone else but Indiana Jones. It just doesn't feel like an Indiana Jones film. And I think Spielberg felt the same way, which is why they ended up not making it. Some of the things that are similar that you do see in Last Crusade are a boat chase scene where people are chasing Indy, then Indy's chasing other people in these boats, in these canals. It's I don't believe it's in Venice, but it is it is like a canal chase scene. And it ends when the villain or the bad guy's boats get smashed between two boats that are being pushed together by tugboats. So that happens. Yeah, okay. There's a chase scene with the tank where Indiana Jones is riding an animal and he has to like leap onto the tank and try and hold people inside. And the quest for something that gives immortal life. In this case, it's Peaches, but eventually it turns out to be the Holy Grail. That's kind of where the similarities end, but those are the huge set pieces of the film. It pains me to go into the details because it's really not very good. But again, keep in mind, this is a first draft. It opens with a truncated version of the haunted house <laughs> story. Oh. Yeah, and it's bad. <laughs> it's, it's very bad. It's a very bad opening. I mean, I would love to read you the whole thing, but we're not going to. But like, I would love to read you the whole thing of... Indiana Jones is fishing. He's it's in Scotland, 1937. He's like got the you know his little fishing hat over his eyes, sleeping, trying to catch a bite. And some like Scottish detective is like, Professor Jones, it's happened again. There's been another murder. You must help us. And he's like, oh, I'm just trying to fish. And he gets out there, and they find the body on the moors. And it's like the body has all, every bone in it broken, but there's no signs of bruising or marks and stuff. And they're like, it must be the ghost from the old whatever estate. And he's like, I don't believe in ghosts. And then like they hear evil cackling. And it's, it's the, your spoiler alert, it is a ghost. Like it's a literal <laughs> ghost that's murdering people. And they never explain why. And he goes in with a team of people and they all get picked off one by one in gruesome ways. That's like something you'd find at the Disney Haunted Mansion. He eventually comes face to face with the ghost and he fights 
animated suits of armor and dogs and eventually like he forces what he thinks is a person outside they slap the cuffs on they put him in the back of a carriage to take him away to jail and as it's about to leave indy gets a glimpse of him as as this person lights a cigarette and through the light of the cigarette you see this person is transparent and it laughs cackle and cackles no jail can hold me as it like drives away and that's it that's the opening. Then he goes back to Marshall College, and the adventure begins all anew. That none of that ever comes up ever again, and it's not even referenced. We literally fucking saw a ghost murder people. It's 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 so bizarre. Amazing. Man, okay. He, <laughs> yeah. So I don't think any of that's going to show up. <laughs> but what is? To be honest, with this entire script, I don't know if any of it's going to show up because it's so out there. Maybe the idea of the immortal garden of peaches. I really don't think so. This is so bonkers and so crazy. Um, oh fact, shit no Doug you just did it what Indiana Jones he's gonna get immortal life he's gonna eat them peaches and he's gonna turn into Alden Ehrenreich <laughs> <laughs> the other interesting thing um, the Nazi villain in this was based on the old concept art from Raiders of the Lost Ark of the Nazi with the bionic arm like the robotic arm <laughs> that guy is in this uh, apparently he was in the early drafts of Raiders of the Lost Ark as well so this is the Nazi that is we have yet to see and was in this version as well Needless to say, I didn't really like it. I could literally go on for hours about the details of this script and what was very bad. If you'd like, Doug, to let us know and we'll sure. do that episode. Yeah. He has multiple love interests. There's a whole subplot of like Indiana Jones being like a pervert. Um, <laughs> like he has sex with his students. It's supposed to be comedic, you know, but it's just really poor taste, especially in this day and age. There's a. Uh, hey, what do you want? It was the 1930s. You know, you, you sleep with a student. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so after the ghost opening he's back at like marshall college and um he's like grading papers much like the beginning of last crusade where all the students are like mm -hmm. dr jones blah, blah 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 and all this hubbub very similar scene happening here uh, a student female student comes in kisses him is like oh hello wendy and this is like one of the love interests has a crush on him and they apparently they've totally done it like on the down low but he's like trying not to let anyone else know because she is like a current student and is like his teaching assistant so she's gonna help him grade papers and then another female student named rebecca runs up slaps him everyone gets quiet and she screams you two-timing bastard how could you my own mother in my own bed she slaps him again I've had it with you. It's over. She throws a shirt that obviously belongs to Indiana on the desk and storms out of the room. Indy shakes his head and continues working. And then just more people come in with grades and shit. <laughs> now that scene's going to occur in Indy 5, oh. but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be what breaks up him and Marion. It's, this, it's just this nonstop. And then Betsy, the, Betsy is the girl that he's totally banging on the side. And when she finds out he's leaving to go on an adventure, she threatens to kill herself if she doesn't come uh... along with him. And it's played for laughs. And it's like he's packing his bags and she's like making a noose in his house. And she's like, I'm going to hang myself. And he like pulls it down. He's like, stop it. Stop it. You're going to ruin that bookshelf or whatever. And then she like pours gasoline on herself and starts to light a match and he blows it out. And it's all like a joke. Hilarious. Yeah. Anyway, this goes on. It's a reoccurring gag that she's trying to kill herself the whole movie. What a gag. Yeah. And um, then he like falls in love with the other main actual main love interest who's a professor. And she's disgusted by him the whole time because she knows that he's totally banging this student. But in the end, they get married. It doesn't make any sense. It's it's bad. Oh, and, hey, they get married. Indiana yeah. Jones gets married. Yeah, much like... Well, we've seen that. Yeah, and it's going to be a reoccurring theme. I, I've read like four other scripts. We'll go into them, and they get better. <laughs> should, but, should we make this like a reoccurring segment? It's going to have to be. We've much, spent a lot of time no, on No, I know, it. because much like reading the early drafts of the Star Wars ones, those were multiple episodes of multiple things. It, I, I'm telling you, it's only going to be more. There's, okay. there's no way I can well, possibly then, encapsulate. Then, then to, to put a bow on this, I have one question. Yes. Did anything from the Romancing the Stone Woman's script occur? I mean, like you, you haven't talked about that at all. Have you read that? 
that one is actually impossible to find. No one's no one online has ever said that they've read it. I think that script, the one that takes place entirely in a, in a haunted castle, I think that one has basically been kept under lock and key because she passed away and they knew they weren't going to go with it and they didn't want to release it. And I don't think Spielberg liked it anyway. So for whatever reason, it just hasn't seen the light of day. But I'm willing to bet several of the set pieces in that movie are in the opening of that Chris Columbus script because it's so full of crazy things one after another. It, it is like a mini movie crammed into like 20 minutes hmm. and uh it's so out there it's so crazy but if you want a great indiana jones story i don't really recommend it <laughs> if you if you're looking and I, you know all due respect i know it was a first draft apparently there was a second draft based on the same idea that chris columbus wrote where he fixed the annoying sidekick who's trying to kill herself she's gone it's it's very different the ending is not so kooky and weird. but you haven't seen it that also is kept under lock and key but there is more details about it like in the version i read the monkey king was a benevolent guy indiana jones dies at the end but the monkey king brings him back to life and gives him the golden hooped staff that is basically like mjolnir like you can call it. it's 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 out there dude magic all over the place in this bitch like the tank scene i told you right it's in africa indiana jones is riding a rhinoceros that he jumps onto the tank but the tank is actually a steampunk tank that's 100 feet long and three stories tall being piloted by gorillas in nazi uniforms okay so aside from the gorillas yeah you kind of describe that big soviet bushwhacker that takes on the amazon much very similar to that to what shows up in uh in crystal skull there's a lot of stuff all throughout that shows up in crystal skull a lot of stuff that shows up in last crusade the only thing that really hasn't shown up is anything having to do with the monkey king and indiana jones riding a rhinoceros <laughs> It's, I would also, in a weird way, not just keep our eyes peeled on Indy 5 for any elements, but, you know, Disney also has a similar film coming out next year in Jungle Cruise. So who knows? Maybe some of these things will appear in Jungle Cruise. The uh, Another future script that I'm going to talk about is for the fourth Indiana Jones film called Indiana Jones and the Saucer Men from Mars. And that opens with an ex- extended sequence that basically is Jungle Cruise. I mean, it's like literally Indy and the love interest are on a boat going down the river in Africa. And, oh, man, I, I can't even get started on it. I've already spent way too much time discussing it. And it hurts my brain. They weren't they were, interesting. Yeah. My reaction to reading the Star Wars early drafts was, wow, how interesting, how different, how cool. Well, they weren't as good as the movies, but, hey, it's still interesting and cool. And I want to see where this goes. Reading these early drafts of Indiana Jones, it's like, oh, we dodged a bullet, folks. I mean, you complain, you can complain about Temple of Doom. You can complain about Crystal Skull all you want. You don't know the half of it. <laughs> It's funny, they wrote so many compelling Indiana Jones novels, but apparently it's hard to get a screenplay. Yeah, and Spielberg wanted, after Temple of Doom, he wanted something lighter and funnier and more adventure-y. And I believe that this first draft that Chris Columbus did was a sort of overcorrection. I give him all the credit in the world for having such a short amount of time to write it, especially after these crazy circumstances and being in between films. I mean, it's not easy to write a screenplay at all. So... I give him all the credit in the world for doing an impossible thing, given an impossible task. And uh, it would be a fun, kooky adventure movie in its own right. But for Indiana Jones, it's not good. Dang. <laughs> well, thus ends Indie Inquiry. Stay tuned for future journeys into the terrible world of Indiana Jones unused scripts with Doug. We'll need to come up with a catchy title for that <laughs> segment. But right now, let's divert very briefly to to something else. Matt, you weren't present with us for our Captain EO conversation last episode, and you had some thoughts. Mostly just personal, because EO means so much to me. It might actually like be my actual favorite Lucasfilm property. 
Whoa. Like just in terms of life impact. It, it's hard because it's it's on like a per minute basis, just like at the time it was like the most expensive movie made ever per minute. I feel like how much I got out of it per minute might be like, you know, the my favorite Lucasfilm <laughs> property. But um, yeah, no, I, I've just toyed around for years about the idea of either somehow incorporating EO into the Star Wars universe. I mean, because he does have very uh, Jedi-like powers, I would say. Um, and there's definitely, you know, a, a, some sort of like, you know, rebel group involved. So mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of empire they're fighting or whatever. But uh, my friend and I have just spent a, a long time like coming with ideas for like EO feature length films and how great it would be to infuse like pop music with with uh, science fiction and how we've never had that before. And I just really missed out like last week be- while I was a force ghost from participating in that. And I've just, just wanted to add that I've, I've spent like a long time thinking about that. And I think Disney should make that happen. Like get the full rights from the Jackson estate and let's make this happen. So the Jackson estate is a factor in this. Uh, from what I've, the research I've done, um, they do have some say on the EO, I think just on the character. Um, well, about but, the, what about the likeness of Michael Jackson himself? Oh, well, absolutely yeah, that. Yeah, like, but, you can't, you know. Sure, but, but, but I mean, like, could you do a remake of it featuring someone else? I guess the answer is no, you could not without their approval. Unless, of course, it's the character of Captain EO, and therefore Doug's idea of Captain Exo yeah. flies. Yeah, it's <laughs> the same universe, it's not that character. Yeah, I I don't think EXO works as well as EO, unfortunately. But you know, there's I've I've you know a lot of time spent on the the symbol and what it means and like what exactly his powers are. Like obviously the spectrum insinuates some sort of light, and obviously the you know the powers that he uses in the movie, which I feel I, I come across a lot of people in life lately that never got the chance to experience Captain EO. And I guess being a Florida kid, I feel like I saw it constantly, and I feel bad when I talk about it as if everybody has seen it. Yeah. Um, you can watch all of it on YouTube in terrible quality, but you can watch terrible it. quality. But yeah, the, I mean, I've I've talked about this since like the Justin Timberlake, like when he was the biggest thing in pop music, and I'm like, that's the perfect person that has like s- some pretty decent acting capability, and he can dance, and he can sing, and he can, like, you know, this is who you should get to to play EO, or like the new EO, or you know, whether that's a a, a, a title or a position or you know whatever it might be, like maybe just the heir apparent, like. Maybe EO is a prophecy, you know, and like EO's returning. Well, the uh, the um, era of Justin has pretty much passed in a way. What about someone yeah. like Janelle Monet? Ooh, I certainly should definitely be in the movie at the very least. I mean, she's cultivated her own series of sci-fi concept albums and, right. and Afrofuturism for that matter. Like, I feel like Captain EO, as crazy a clusterfuck as it is, you can't have a white person star in Captain EO. Though I recognize Michael was quite white at the time. But <laughs> it just would be, it would be wrong, I think. Even if not replacing that character, it would still be missing out on, on what was at the time a really fascinating piece of black science fiction. Yeah. When Tron Legacy came out and I saw the, you know, the Jeff Bridges recreation thing, that was when I remember having a lot of discussions with my friend like, oh, Michael could be in this movie briefly. You know, like, oh, wow, <laughs> that that was I was like, that would be a cool thing, too, is if that if that's the concession that like the Jackson estate would want to make, like Michael's in this movie for at least, you know, a scene or a flashback or something like that. Like that would be a kind of cool draw, I think, for for audiences. And, it, and it's not just about like modern pop music either. I think during that period, which EO came out, like 
the pop music of the time was incorporating so much science fiction sound and look aesthetic into what was going on at the time that it would be important for this movie to also look back at the sci-fi cinema of the time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, an aesthetic that people are still aspiring towards. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll have more to say on the subject of Captain EO as time moves on. Maybe I, we'll hear some stuff, but or we'll just... It's, con- it's the project after we get Willow going... EO's next. I mean, it's the obvious next step. You know, you're right, Matt. <laughs> that is brilliant. That is exactly what we're going to do. So once Willow's going on, we got Willow Watch, Indie Inquiry. What's the EO EO update? That's maybe as good as we could hope for. But <laughs> hey, hey uh, Indie Inquiry was a fan submission. So if you've got an idea, let us know. But hey, speaking of, it's time for Willow Watch. Willow. Not much to report on Willow, not surprisingly. We've, we had a very intense few months there, so, you know, obviously things are still a bit chill. But we've, uh, we've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes. We've acquired both Willow board games, both the Parker Brothers one, which is the hardest one to get, and the Tor Games one, as in the publisher, the book publisher, which is authored by the co-writer of the Willow source book, which is interesting. Haven't played any of them yet. We don't know when that's going to be. But when we do, stay tuned to our social feeds like Willow Watch underscore on Twitter. We're on Instagram now as well. And of course, Facebook. We'll keep you updated on when we're going to play it and we'll try to live stream the thing. And the Parker Brothers one, it's sealed. Damn. So we'll just we'll do an unboxing video, <laughs> which I haven't checked, but I'm presuming no one has no done that. No one's before. done yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> but here, here's another thing. We have a Consequence of Sound event happening uh, July 28th and 29th. It's called Greetings from Castle Rock and it's uh, celebrating the launch of the Castle Rock show on Hulu with you know all the Stephen King films and properties set in that world occurring together in this one television program. So we're putting together a film festival in Chicago at the Music Box Theater playing a bunch of films set in Castle Rock. The artist for the poster is Kimpo Cornelius. And they were talking with me and said, hey, you love Willow. Have you seen this? And sent me a music video made in 2007 for a song by Leslie Hall. Now, Leslie Hall is an internet famous lady who's done all kinds of wonderful stuff. She's known for her gem sweater collection, her songs about gem sweaters. She has done a bunch of work with the Aquabats and like Yo Gabba Gabba as an Aquabats adjacent thing. She's an amazing performer, a lot of fun. She does some wonderful voice work. Well, she put out a record in 2006 called Doorman's Daughter, which had a secret song on it called Willow Don't Cry, which had a music video in 2007 made with uh, the YouTube group Dungeon Majesty. So there's a Willow song that existed for years now, and somehow we didn't know. All you fine folks listening to us over the years didn't know. Or if you did, you didn't say anything. Yeah, no one told us about this. <laughs> so uh, it's it's wonderful. It's a, it's a joy to behold. Let's listen to a clip. Come on now, Willow, and don't cry. I don't want to see you die. No, no, no. Deliver that daikini child to tear Did you notice that the way she was singing in the background, like the backing vocals of Willow? I mean, I didn't catch that, but uh, yeah, Willow. It, it sounds. <laughs> I guess there's only so many ways you can songify the word Willow. Like you, you only stretch. You can't say Willow. It's I not mean, as it doesn't really roll off the tongue. I as never well. assumed the arcade sound Willow. effect was songified, but <laughs> there, there is sort of a musical melody to yeah. it. 
But the way she said, Willow, that's how she says it, which is like the high-pitched version of the sad Willow. dad. How else can you say Willow like long? You could say Willow or Willow. It's not the same. You can't like there's only so many Willow. ways to say it. Willow. I mean, because it, it's a bit lower. And I'm wondering, I'm just I'm wondering if Leslie, be obviously being a huge Willow fanatic, we gotta get her on the show, right? Like, maybe she's familiar with the arcade game. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Stranger things have happened yeah. on State of the Empire. That's for damn sure. I just want to hear the dubstep remix. Ooh. Or just right when the beat drops and you always have that audio clip. The audio clip is just, Mad Mart again. <laughs> <laughs> well, send your uh, Leslie Hall remixes to yes. State of the Empire. Star Wars at consequenceofsound.net is our email address. Dust of Broken Hearts remix. <laughs> 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 Yes, please. Yes, please. Or if you have a Willow song, you know, we don't have a theme for Willow Watch. Uh, that's not for lack of uh, attempting. We need to get one. If you if you have it in you to produce a quality one, at the very least on the level of Maximum Rebo by Zantilla, you know what to do. That's a high bar to set. Yeah. Oh, I, I know, I know. You do that late 90s, early 2000s thing where, like, on the bridge, like, when it gets real quiet and, like, all jazzy smooth for a second, and it gets all spacey, and then you have, like, that high fidelity telephone sounding filter that you put on movie clip audio where it's mad martigan saying you are my son my moon my starlit sky without you i dwell in darkness and then it cuts back into the main theme again after that i'm already hearing it in my head i should just make it but i have, I have no musical skill whatsoever <laughs> make jug's dream a reality willow remix <laughs> please do it and we will play it on the show in theory well Thus ends Willow Watch, and also thus ends State of the Empire. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can find me at Cap Blackard on Twitter. And I'm at Doug V. Banks. And I am at Matthew Spill. And all of us collectively are at Willow Watch underscore. And like I said, we also have an Instagram now. Find us there. Find us on Facebook. Join us in the Star Wars Spoilers Facebook group for all those dank chats about the deepest, darkest Star Wars stuff that you don't want to spoil for your grandma. And we'll see you in two weeks. State of the Empire is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida at Nerdy Show Studios, home of the Nerdy Show Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. Discover more at nerdyshow.com. Our theme song, Maximum Rebo, was written and performed by Zantilla. Find more awesome tracks at zantilla.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our Bothan pals in the Star Wars Spoilers Facebook group, the Nerdy Show Network Patreon backers, and George Sakul, just a reckless dreamer from Tatooine whose near-fatal crash in his T-16 gave him a new direction in life. He became an ace pilot for the Rebellion so good, he must be Force-sensitive. Jorg is also a visionary storyteller who'd regale pilots in his command with stories set long, long ago in galaxies far, far away. Now, where have I heard that before? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.